Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Senior Biotechnology Analyst at TD Cowan. I'm super excited to be joined today by Jeff Van Maltzen in this episode, Reaching New Frontiers, to discuss how generative biology is bending the challenges of scale and is reaching new frontiers in drug development. Jeff is general partner at Flagship Pioneering. He's an inventor, entrepreneur, CEO, and co-founder of multiple companies that integrate biology and data science to transform human health and sustainability. Most prominent to our conversation today, Jeff was the founding CEO of Generate Biomedicines, a company that is employing a cutting-edge generative AI platform to develop novel protein therapeutics. Jeff today remains involved in Generate as a director and is incubating several new companies that have machine intelligence at their core. Jeff, always great to see you, and thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Likewise, and it's great to be here. I'm uh, really excited about this podcast specifically since this is really about innovation. There's a lot going on right now in biology, in new therapeutics, both on the small molecule and obviously on large molecule side, and, and kind of weaving in AI into it. And generative AI is really vaulted now into the mainstream. There's a lot of debates now and intrigue about how it's going to get woven into daily life applications, future impact. And, you know, definitely in biotech, there's a, an AI revolution going on in terms of new therapeutics development. How did we get here and what does this really mean for innovation? Ooh, beautiful question. I'll start by rewinding the clock a little bit. 20 years ago, I was an undergraduate at MIT, focused on chemical engineering, but I fell in love with biology. That wasn't instantaneous. In fact, it was one of these love affairs that started with joining a biology lab, mustering the courage to quit three months later in that it was really monotonous. And as I looked around, I started to imagine that I might have decades of monotony ahead of me. Uh, it triggered a set of conversations that have become the best guiding light I can point to in 20 years, which was the biology would inevitably have a transition from slow, expensive guesswork to predictive success. And, and although that sounds really simple, its implications are extraordinary, and they might not even have bounds in that when a subset of, subset of chemical systems did that, the whole world changed, subset of electrical systems doing that, whole world changed, mechanical systems the same. So chunks of life having that same transition are going to be a really big deal. And the reason machine intelligence is, appears to be so pivotal in uh, allowing that uh, transition is a couplefold. One, whether we like it or not, biology mostly doesn't work in ways that our brains are well suited to understand and that human language is uh, adept at capturing. When you have thousands of quantitatively causal contributors to a cellular process, you know, human sentences don't usually well describe those things. 2D diagrams in a textbook on a chalkboard, et cetera, similarly are an injustice to them. And unfortunately, physics hasn't helped us a whole lot. It's, of course, helped us get to the moon, but 
um, a beautiful thing called the diffraction limit of light means that when you put the most interesting biological systems and the smallest under a microscope, everything gets blurry below 20 nanometers or 200 nanometers or so, depending on the tools that you're using, which means that these things we call proteins and the biomolecules they interact with at the form of DNA and RNA, we don't get to see how they really work. Like we, we don't have videos of, you know, of biology doing its most majestic things. And first principles-based physics models of how those events happen, how a protein folds itself, how two proteins touch or bind to one another also haven't uh, been particularly successful. So that's that's left a wide open playing field for machines. And, and to oversimplify it, the ability of machines to recognize patterns at scale that, that we cannot. And to start with the fundamentals of biology being the most sophisticated information technology on the planet affords it the unique position to learn biology from scratch in ways that we haven't had access to. Got it. And so there, there is a, a, a huge need on, on looking at, is it looking at big data based on genetics? Is it based on a function structure relationship on the pathway level? Maybe kind of level set us at what point do you see kind of where the innovation is happening right now? Yeah, great question. So unfortunately, despite the biology being the information technology sentiment I just described, for the most part, biological data sets are really messy. They're relatively sparse. And there isn't an easy to articulate or conceptualize scenario where AI can just run wild and figure out biology. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to do that by reading every paper in that half or more of all papers can't be reproduced by well-meaning scientists trying to reproduce the exact same thing. And, um, you know, back to that human narrative set of inadequacies, much of what we've been describing in biology is built around the way our brains can conceptualize things and, and less so the way biology truly works. So the number of places where there are large high-quality data sets in biology from which one can extract valuable outcomes is still relatively low. But I can give you some insight into the way we thought about the foundation of Generate in that regard, in that we felt privileged to have the ability to at least start with two such domains that to us might be applicable to creating protein therapeutics in entirely new Okay, so right before we kind of we kind of dive into that, you know, what one of the intersections that sort of is met with with uh, you know a virtual sort of an AI based approach is there's the concept of data mining, learning, potentially linking new biological processes together, but then ultimately a lot of this needs to get redacted from a virtual you know an AI platform to actual real world experimentation. How, how does that intersection really mean based on, you know, literally assay design, as you say, the way we process assays as humans is, you know, limited in many ways and, you know, obviously data integration. If one can use machine intelligence in ways that can make useful predictions, um, it helps if there's some filter in between those predictions and, yeah, particularly in medicine, setting real world medical decisions or products in motion. And in the realm of drug, drug discovery, of course, you know, we have, as a field, been building those in various forms for 100 plus years. 
So the platform we built to generate all of the hallucinations, all of the yeah, grounded predictions that come out of the model are all evaluated quantitatively in assays that allow us to be able to determine whether or not the prediction is in fact um, accurate for the quantitative outcome that matters and what are the biological consequences of that and, and is a given biomolecule eventually ready to be a therapeutic. The, what you just hinted at is actually a really powerful subtlety of an era of machine intelligence, which is all of those assays I just described, we have been designing them and implementing them with, of course, the presumption accurate thus far that the output of those assays is going to flow into human intelligence from which small numbers of people are going to make decisions about what to do next. And because human intelligence and machine intelligence is an only, only partially overlapping Venn diagram, when you design assays for machine intelligence, you have to remove some of those filters of, well, this is how we've done it, which you know might have subtly entered our subconscious a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And instead figure out what could allow the machine to learn most voraciously from quantitative data. And in some cases, there are simple heuristics like machines typically extract more value from, from quantitative losers in an assay than humans tend to. <clears throat> like we tend to zoom in on, all right, which, which was the best in the high throughput screen or what are, the, what are the hits and what can we learn about them? But that can discount or erase all of the value of learning from each of the predictions that was unsuccessful and having the model become wiser as a result. Additionally, there are some differences in the way that one would prioritize cycle time versus throughput. In some cases, we found that the human uh, inclination that high throughput is high throughput is for machine intelligence, in fact, better suited to be fast is high throughput or fast cycle times with iterative generation allows one to climb the mountain more rapidly than slow high throughput campaigns. And, and there are other subtleties to it. And I, you know, we, the world are going to be learning, you know, how, how can, how do we best yield, wield this new, uh, extraordinary tool of intelligence in the way that we discover medicines? Yeah, so so that that's a um, a super interesting concept because as you said, you, you know, you think of screening tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, whatever that 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 throughput's going to be, and you're looking for those thirty-seven hits, and you're discounting, you know, all the other data, and all that the other data is obviously, you know, fairly powerful, especially when you're trying to validate and develop a model. And so you really talked about, you know, in the past, you know, you, you've talked about scale is the enemy of the startup. And what you're talking about right now is looking at intelligence in a different scale and really powering that up. When you're trying to, when bi, you know, when Generate Biomedicines is trying to develop a new therapeutic, a new protein therapeutic, be it an antibody, let's say, do, do you start with a validated pathway and, and a known protein? And at that point, you try to really optimize how a best therapeutic, whether it's an antibody or whatever it's going to end up being, uh, a best protein-based therapeutic is going to be developed. Is it? Do you need to know the structure, function, relationship of the pathway, or 
as you noted, when you're you're changing the epitope, you're changing the stoichiometry, the the binding geometry, the energy permutations, maybe literally the space connotations between interactions on the receptor, if that's what you're looking at, and you're looking at quote unquote disappointing or negative results, how does the model then factor that in? Yeah, great question. Well, let, let me zoom out quickly and I'll ground the foundation of Generate and then and then give you a specific perspective. So uh, for your amusement, somebody asked me recently whether Generate uses generative AI. And I said, well, that's why we named that five years ago. So we started the company five years ago. It was based on explorations we started about three years prior. And those explorations at Flagship were recognizing that physics was making relatively little progress. <clears throat> Maybe we could start to set physics aside and begin to apply machine learning to implicitly what it means at the level of DNA code for a protein to have a given category of function, or even better, to have a specific quantitative function. And, you know, although that sounds simple, DNA is, of course, the code of life. And that means that the sequence of DNA that encodes every single antibody used in therapeutics today, every protein in biotechnology, has the quantitative parameters that drives those hundreds of billions of dollars of annual revenue encoded in that sequence of DNA. And if we knew what those were, then we might be able to read, i.e. look at DNA, know what it is saying quantitatively about the function of the protein, and write, meaning create completely new proteins that haven't existed, but outperform what we've been able to do thus far. And, and we had the virtue of two large data sets of high quality to get going. One was all genomes that have ever been sequenced, and we created the equivalent of a human large language model that applied to the language of life, every DNA sequence we could get our hands on. The second was the regime of three-dimensional protein crystals and protein-protein interactions. And we fed every one of those into our models with the idea that maybe the single most valuable function in all of biotech, which is to predict what something would need to look like to stick at a very precise location on a target while not sticking to other stuff. You know, simplistically, that's all antibody value. That's all peptide value. And that is most protein therapy. So if we could figure out how to generate compositions of what does an antibody need to look like to hit here, it, it might offer an advantage. And, and we surmise that maybe the way amino acids like to interact inside of proteins and between proteins would have a common rule book that if learned might allow us to perform that generative. Ooh. Those public data sets sort of helped us crawl. It was inelegant. I, I have a six month old at home, so I'm, I'm full of crawling analogies right now. And you know, yet it was locomotion. Like our, our, our daughter Zelda is, you know, appropriately proud of of her, her progress. Um, but what has really allowed us to allow these models to blast off is, is the sort of bespoke reinvention of what quantitative assays and what quantities of data could flow into models, allowing us to continuously evaluate generative predictions for you know their therapeutic merit. And so to your point, if you sort of put a dotted line between generating the ideal protein therapeutic for a target versus figuring out the ideal target for a given disease, 
Right now, we're entirely focused on the first one, which is if you just took the CDR of an antibody, 60 amino acids or so are involved in determining what a, an antibody binds to. That means every one of those has 20 options. There's 20 amino acids, which means there's 20 to the 60 power of potential antibodies. That is atoms of the entire universe, every galaxy, every star, every planet, combinatorial diversity. Mm -hmm. When you think of it in that light, it's actually more miraculous that our B cells or a mouse's B cells or a llama's B cells or a high throughput assay ever come up with a viable answer than it is to imagine that those answers are always optimal. Mm. And the power of a generative platform is that you can start to move away from sequence being your search space and understand where function space resides and what sequences exhibit a common function and what does a gradient of positive function look like. At times, predicting sequences that are hugely distinct from one another but are next to our neighbors in a functional realm. So what all that allows is us to be able to put more antibodies against a desired target than any prior approaches that we're aware of and to precisely position them against a given epitope. And that, that diversity of winners allows one to start to embed therapeutic advantages at multiple levels. Higher potency, better dosing uh, regimen, longer half-life, erase manufacturing liabilities. And um, the, the rate at which this speeds up biotech is, is pretty spectacular to us. We think the best moat in the future is going to be very simple. It'll be best drugs. Yeah. Other moats won't, won't be very effective. And, uh, and we are really pleased and impressed by the way that these tools can allow us to achieve that. And so the, the model is, is very much sequence variability that ultimately based on the model generates, you know, obviously different structure of the, of, of the antibody in that case, and more specifically binds. And, you know, you can look at the CDR, you know, to obviously look at potency. Are you also varying a lot of the FC domain related to manufacturing and, and you know, how to tighter up ADCC, tighter down, do mutagenesis as need be? Yeah, I mean, simplistically, any function of a protein that confers a therapeutic advantage is within the remit of these models. The one that we've started with is the feat that gets you on the field for all biotechnology that relies upon binding to a target. But we found that the models can simultaneously overlay manufacturability and resistance to aggregation and, and other parameters that help you create a better therapeutic. And, um, these models get wiser the more data flows into them, which back to your scale point has some really interesting implications for future biotech innovation in that thus far as one scales, because some of the virtues of small human teams pushing for at the frontiers of innovation start to dissipate <clears throat> while benefits of economies of scale, you know, step into the picture, companies have typically had their their discovery prowess plateau. That may not be the case and doesn't appear to be the case if you can tap into intelligence of scale. 
you know, where the scale at which you are discovering brings greater intelligence and discovery prowess with it. And you know, what we've seen is that our antibody programs help us get better at peptide programs and vice versa. And antibody programs make other antibody programs better. And that has powerful implications for the general application of machine intelligence to the future of biology. And that we may start to see a subset of startups that do this to a really elite degree, continually accruing more platform value and becoming more prolific in their ability to prosecute programs as they grow. And so you have a model that that is, you know, it's somewhere still young in the building mode. It's generating a lot of data and you're beginning to you need to validate some of those findings, you know, to fine tune the model and allow it to kind of, you know, reverse back and, and learn from data. So a lot of it, to your point, now needs to be reducted to, you know, th three-dimensional real life and manufacturing of these antibody modalities, let's say, if we're talking about an antibody formation. And, and then, you know, fitting it back in a high-throughput way to look at structure function in that receptor, let's say, if we're looking at a ligand or a receptor specifically, and, and feed that back into the model. So inevitably, you're, you do have a scale to solve for in manufacturing and testing. So can you talk, because the model I would imagine would probably outpace your ability to generate antibodies and test them in real life. Can you talk about that process? I'll give you a quick snapshot. So we, we have brought the first, as far as we're aware, generative AI antibody into clinical testing. Our first program was focused on identifying antibodies that would hit a portion of the spike protein of COVID Mm -hmm. that hasn't evolved almost at all since the first variants came out, and it might not be able to evolve in that it happens to be this sort of amazing mousetrap that allows a fusogen to push two membranes together, as opposed to the ACE2 binding part, which has mutated voraciously since arrival. Of we have our next program moving to the clinic before the end of this year, and this has allowed us to do um, a number of categories of things. So from a, from a binding perspective first, uh, as our models started to go from crawling to better locomotion, when I was still leading the team, I, I challenged the computational group to try to take the top $50 billion of antibody therapeutic sales and generate antibodies that would hit the exact same target, in fact, the same epitope of the same target, in the same binding pose with a comparable structural interface, with a comparable or better affinity without being anywhere near the parent intellectual property. Within three months, they were able to do that for 100% of them. Hmm. And to put that in context, I, I think if you had a, a big pharmaceutical company's resources, you probably wouldn't be able to do that in five years. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also allowed us to generate antibodies to epitopes that as far as we're aware, neither immune systems nor prior empirical approaches have found valid solutions to including scenarios where straight out of the computer predictions function as an antibody to one of those sites that we don't, as far as we know, hasn't been targeted previously. So that, that allows one to access either de-risked biology, but to erase therapeutic liabilities or novel biology in new ways. So, so you're right. You know, we have a portfolio prioritization challenge that doesn't usually exist for company yeah. five years old. We have 17 programs, I mentioned two going to the clinic, more going to the clinic next year. 
and the the rate limiting steps for us don't appear to be on the discovery side. Some of the things that we're doing might have been decade campaigns otherwise. So it, it does create a unique question of, all right, well then what is limiting? Like something's always limiting when you're building a company. You know, it's often one of three things, your opportunity, your resources, or your team. And for most of the past 20 years, that has been opportunity in that a biotech company has had an insight into an area of biology that might be best applied to a few therapeutic programs. Here, if what we're seeing is right, then there are universal rules that govern how proteins function. And proteins you know, are the anchor of biotech, and antibodies is a subset of them. Peptides are another portion, and gene therapies are another portion. You know, therefore, the order in which one does things, you know, merits a lot of scrutiny. So we're focused on de-risk biology, on things where manufacture, manufacturing isn't a major limitation. And we are applying our models to the manufacturability of protein therapeutics as well. And as far as we can tell, they're well suited towards that because, you know, the production of a protein inside of a cell has been a very difficult thing for our human brains or, you know, any prior modeling approaches to, to really understand. Um, but there are, there are some meaningful advantages to these approaches now. And w within the model, w what are the limitations of the model and how important is it for understanding the function of the target protein to be, to be inputted into the model? Because if you, if you're looking to bind to a novel, you know, a novel structure, you have to really understand how that epitope, that area will impact the overall functionality of the, of the target pathway, right? So maybe talk, talk a little bit about that. How much new experimentation do you need to do on the biology itself, even de-risk biology? For that reason, we're, we're trying in our initial portfolio to isolate as much technology risk as we can and limit the amount of biology risk that we're taking. And it seems that we're able to embed sufficiently meaningful therapeutic advantages to antibodies against de-risked protein targets that um, we can live for a short period of time in a virtuous place of relatively low biology risk, but while adding important medicines to what's, what patients uh, can access. Of course, inevitably, we're going to be in high-risk biology as well. And what you're describing, which is being able to choose areas where our advantages can be brought to bear and with highest fidelity translate to an outcome that matters in the clinic is something that we think a lot about. Like if you oversimplify what we can do just from a technology perspective, if one has a novel target, instead of saying, let me look for an antibody that sticks to this target somewhere, we may have the ability to say, Let's generate antibodies across a range of affinities for every one of the epitopes that this target presents. And let's conduct a meritocracy of which of those antibodies elicits a biological response that appears to be most efficacious. And, you know, that, that allows one to, you know, start to potentially access the best drug for a target much more methodically than uh, our current tool. That's, uh, that's fun, you know, fantastically interesting and obviously really pushes the boundaries. So if you look at Generate Biomedicines, that you've raised about 700 million so far since you 
essentially founded the company through Series C so far. That's without the capital coming from the Amgen deal. What what suggests that the the platform is working? As you mentioned, there's um, one IND going in. There's actually two, and then you know a host um, coming potentially even next year. And you're looking at INI, you're looking at ID, infectious disease, and you're obviously looking at oncology too, kind of a, as a, an initial priority set. You know, how well is it working so far and wh- where would you be a year from now? Yeah, I'll give you two categories of examples <clears throat> that matter to me. And you can tell me whether they resonate. First category is what leads us to believe that this is going to create valuable therapeutics. Second category is what leads us to believe that this is going to change the rules of biomedicine. The first has evident value in the short term. The second, in some ways, is is much more aligned with the reason we asked the questions that became generated in the first place. You know, none of us get to live very long. Maybe we have a little bit of time, a few decades, might be zero. Mm. Much more fulfilling to try to work on things that may just change the, the very rules that a whole category operates based on. And although to some of my family members, protein as a word sounds boring because they think bacon or soy, you know, these are the most amazing machines in the world. So we can figure out how to generate them. Um, the implications are, are really vast. So I'll give you examples in both. The um, We've been able to take antibodies for de-risk targets and improve their therapeutic potency by more than an order, order of magnitude without straying from the epitope and while improving dosing frequency and reducing other liabilities. That, in our mind, offers the ability to take areas where the biology has been demonstrated and bring the best therapeutic, or what to us may be a better representation of a therapeutic intervention into the, into the clinic. And, and it appears that we can do that for a very large number of programs. The change the rules side of things, here's one fun example. So. We took asparaginase, which is an enzyme used in a subset of uh, cancers. It's bacterially derived, and therefore, of course, it causes um, immunogenicity upon administration to patients. And we asked a crazy question, which was, what if we could rebuild asparaginase so that it would be entirely composed of peptides that are already inside us, or that are hard for our innate immune system to present and recognize? In order to do that, we had to generate versions of asparaginase where we changed, we had to simultaneously change more than a hundred amino acids. Yeah. Again, that's like that in that case, 19 to the 100 power. And, um, with sort of a coin flip, those would still function as an asparaginase. I mean, mm. probability wise, that's like jumping off of earth and landing on another planet somewhere in the universe that's habitable. For human lives. And sometimes they functioned as better asparaginases, higher K catabrachaeum. Yeah. And um, and I give that as an example because it, it that would have been impossible with prior tools of rational data science or muted mutagenesis and directed evolution based um, modulation of that protein. And it may just mean that we're gonna be able to make things like gene therapy vectors that are dramatically safer and that our immune system doesn't pay attention to. And and it certainly means that we're going to be able to create complex proteins that are generated and optimized to be the best tool for performing a given task. 
And and that that specific example with aspergillase, that that's you you're varying a hundred amino acids out of how many in that protein? A couple hundred. Yeah, so it's half the protein is being varied. It's pretty and, and maintaining the, the 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 underlying functional integrity. So is it what what's gospel at that point? Is it uh, literally the binding pocket, the active moiety of the protein, or can you vary that as well? Um, we've been able to vary that as well, but but you're right that what you just described as gospel is is going to be important to figure out for the future of intellectual property in biotech. In that, just saying, I found this amazing sequence. Please protect things that rhyme with it. You know that are. 90% similar, 95% similar is not going to be very, it's not going to be the moat that it has been over the past few decades in that these algorithms appear to be able to jump over those moats, you know, almost while, uh, touching outer space. And, and it, those will probably function more like copyright law. So, you know, in order to fend off the level of mastery that machines can have over protein function. One will have to really figure out what are the conserved moieties and you know what is what is that regime of optimal function space look like in sequences, subsets of sequences, arrangements of atoms or uh, side chains and the like. Yeah. And so when when you're putting a company like this together, what's the hardest part to get right? Is it the code? Is it is it the model? Is it the biological computation that goes into it? I'll give you an answer that may sound surprising. I think the I think getting the culture and ways of working right is the hardest. For much of the past couple decades, data science teams have sort of been on the receiving end, almost like a core facility in many organizations. And, um, you know, human brilliance has, has been driving the bus. Now the clouds have parted a bit and, you know, the mountain range of intelligence appears to have higher peaks of machines times human. And figuring out how do you, how do you create the sense of trust and love and collaboration and adherence to that mission and, and what cycles of interaction and, you know, people almost undertaking the need to, you know, take on another PhD of expertise in order to speak the language of, you know, colleagues that they hadn't formally worked hand in hand with before mm-hmm. is, uh, is really important. And there's a lot of subtleties to it. And, um, I've, have intense admiration for the life form of generate for um for that reason there's a level of pride and collaboration um instilled in the ways of working that's really amazing and hard to get right yeah and when when you're looking at someone from the outside how when they look at generate you know how do they how do they measure success and how do they measure you know how can they tell if the model is 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 continuing to get better Mm, good question. So I haven't been in the shoes of an investor trying to figure out the difference between buzzwords and you know, authentic um, capability, mm-hmm. but, but I'll, I'll ride with your question. I would spend as much time on this as I would portfolio uh, assessment in that the companies that are going to have the ability to change the rules are, are going to exhibit some of the things that I've described, in, intense collaboration, individual leaders who are bought in and who have real mastery. And of course, that includes um, deeply understanding whether the an, an ML team, comparable team, is extraordinary. 
I, I would spend almost as much time asking the people outside of that team, what do they think and what do they know about the machine intelligence strategy? And how would they describe the frequency which data flows into it? And how do they experience predictions that come out of the machine? And you probably can pretty quickly discern when a company has its very being built around machine intelligence versus the other end of the continuum. You know, it's just mm-hmm. saying things in a, in a buzzword realm or the things in between where it is a useful component, but, but it isn't defining the very pace of innovation of the end. Yeah. And then maybe finally, is the model completely internal or can the model go out, as you said before, access databases, prior experimentation, you know, Medline, PubMed, you know, do its own searches and learn didactically from that too? Great question. So both both is a simple answer. The There are reasonable debates over whether the companies like OpenAI creating human large language models have any moat relative to their competitors that could train a similar size model by writing an appropriate check um, on all of the vast human language that's available online. And so long as you are only using publicly available data, I think advantages will be fleeting um, and democratized more rapidly than people may think. And, and therefore, I think the that inference that I was describing before of does a biotech company have the ability to generate valuable data of high quality in quantities that matter for doing things that for creating products that are actually valuable. That uh, pool of data and whether or not it is proprietary and whom else would have access and how hard would it be for others to emulate it is going to be one of the most important determinations as competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. So I think I've looked recently, you know, the, the ChatGPT 3.5, when, when it was tested to look at the ability to predict this disease, just looking at clinical data, I think got, got about 75% of diagnoses right. And I think four, or whether it's even the next version that's being developed, I think it's up to 100 now. So it's almost like the role of the physician increasingly, like we all learned in med school, eventually, um, all we're going to do is be, you know, we're, we're going to be the collectors of information that they can feed into something else that's going to help actually put the diagnosis together. And to, to your point, what's going to be really interesting, you know, we, we look at Relay that does a lot of protein-protein simulation, and what we believe is, is a validated platform now to look at undruggable targets in, in, in the chemical space, obviously. Um, up to now, it's been in oncology. Some of the challenges are not all targets are created equal, and in many times you end up validating an undruggable, previously unvalidated target by designing great therapeutic against it, and then saying, you know, obviously if it works. You know, it sounds like with what you're doing now is you're not quite pushing, you're looking at validated targets and pathways that have been druggable and ultimately led to clinical benefit. And, and as you mentioned, you can continue to do innovation in that in that fashion. At what point do you start looking at, I don't want to call it undruggable or, or maybe pathways that haven't been explored yet or haven't been, um, a new therapeutic hasn't been developed? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't intend to imply that we're only active there. But it's a virtue to be able to work in areas that are low risk and high value 
those usually don't exist because if you're using comparable tools as others, you would come up with comparable answers to things that are already de-risked. And um, the therapeutic advantage in the molecules we've created is is because of the distinctiveness of our platform. But the most exciting things that we're working on are in the, oh, nobody could ever do that before. Or the degree to which we can prosecute it is very distinctive. So several of those 17 programs are either areas that you would describe as undruggables or, for example, the ability to access epitopes with a level of specificity for a particular cancer type or another disease that, that wouldn't have been feasible with, with convert current approaches. And, you know, that's, that's a, a big part of the uh, mission of Generate and, and our near-term strategy. Yeah. Great. Let, let's move to my, my favorite part of each podcast, and it's something a little uh, personal and a little touch of humor. And this one we haven't asked anybody before. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? And you could only choose one. Ooh, that's awesome. I'm not confining myself to comic book ones. I don't know if this exists, but um, time travel comes to mind. <laughs> and, and the reason is what I love about startups is you're you're sort of trying to push yourself to the very edge and figure out something that might seem like speculation to the world. But in your mind, the world will definitively have in the future and then devise how to actually make that feasible. So it, at times it feels like a version of time travel. Mm -hmm. but of course, the rate at which one can assess the you know, validity of that hypothesis is um, dictated by the way we experienced time. And it'd be awesome to be able to hop around a little bit, experience, yeah. you know, arcs of innovation experience you know my kids when they're 60 years old 30 years old and you know alongside the ages that i get them with right now and if you could only choose to go back in time or go forward in time which one would you choose oh that's got to be forward it was cold and, and dark in the dark ages <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you might be trying to push the remote to <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know right I, I literally do say to every once in a while and try to figure out what are we all doing here exactly and and how much time do, are we all going to have left on this planet and i don't want to get into a discussion and is the planet warming on itself is this a part of a normal cycle or we're just accelerating it we're probably not going to be around and maybe we wouldn't have been around regardless of our innovation if you look right the planet changes constantly it's a slow ongoing process but what this really means, and it begins to kind of fathom how limited capability we really know or really have, and just think about how, how little understanding we actually have, not just of biology or just the physical, chemical and physical world, right? There's got to be more to this than what we appreciate and know so far. Well, going back to your medical school example, the models just prior to the 75% couldn't even take the test. Like it was the equivalent of handing a student a test and they're like, what's this? Just think about with any extrapolation what, what the future holds. And there are so many reasons to be pessimistic about, you know, the trajectory of the life form of humanity. A reason to be intensely optimistic is that we're in the climax of the movie of intelligence, mm. you know, and the movie of biology. And, and, and in fact, this wave isn't just going to touch biology, but some of the stuff that I'm working on right now is the 
implications of generative AI for the world of material science. Mm-hmm. Can we pull a century of material science progress into the near future with um, the these advances? And that's going to be a really interesting race of sorts. You know, the problems we've created, their compounding nature mm-hmm. versus the rate at which we can potentially invent our way out of this. Mm-hmm. And that, that could be, you talk about potentially materials relating to, you know, different polymers and, 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 and different alloys. Are we also talking about potentially different fuel sources? Um, the things that we're primarily thinking about are the critical nodes for sustainability. So how can we access dramatic advances in batteries, solar cells, CO2 capture and utilization and others. But, um, you know, we've sort of defined the progress of humanity on the basis of materials. And um, in biology and in materials, one of the most beautiful reasons to be optimistic is with any reasonable assumptions, you could add up all of Mother Nature's experiments and conclude that from a biological perspective and materials perspective, she's only been able to test like one drop of water out of all of the Earth's ocean of potential. Mm-hmm. And maybe these tools are going to help us traverse those open waters. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. What's the one story or memory when you think about your childhood that you look back today and say, wow, you know, that part of me really hasn't changed at all? All right, I've got two examples that come to mind. Uh, one is I broke my collarbone three times, my arms five times as a kid, my hand once. I don't break bones these days, but that was more of an expression of prioritizing independent of personal pains. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think my affinity for startups has, has a similarity to it. Like you, you just, you have to be willing to embrace pain and levels of challenges all the time. And, mm-hmm. and the wonderful aspect of that is it makes you grow. Um, the second is somebody told me once that when you swallow bubble gum, it stays in your system for seven years. I thought, that doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> this might not be what you wanted, but I decided to buy two rolls of bubble tape, the six feet long bubble gum, and just eat them like a sandwich. <laughs> and uh, and it turns out it doesn't stay in your system. It, it does not. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, what flavor was that? That's like eating a sixty pay, you know, sixty ounce steak. Both of them were the the bright pink original gum flavor. Oh, that's a good one, though. You got to choose any of them. That's a good one. Well, great, Jeff. Always good to see you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'll continue to follow the story closely. Cool. Thank you, Ron. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.